afternoon. I'm Charles Lee, and this is the Grox Science Show. Coming up on today's program, we're joined by Dr. Sam Keene. He will talk about his book, The Disappearing Spoon. So you'll want to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000. It's coming right up here on the Grox Science Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Science Show. Well, the periodic table represents one of the crowning achievements in modern science. The orderly representation of the elements almost symbolized the triumph of reason and intellect in deciphering nature's code. Yet, despite its fundamental role in modern society, few of us may be aware of its history or importance. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Sam Keane. Mr. Keane is the noted author whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Aaron Space Smithsonian, and The New Scientist. His latest release, The Disappearing Spoon and other tales of madness, love, and the history of the world from the periodic table of the elements discusses uh, the remarkable history of the elements and their formation in the periodic table. And Mr. Keene, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and this is really a great book, uh, The Disappearing Spoon. You should talk about some of the story behind the periodic table. I'm curious, how did you become interested in this topic? Well, the topic goes back to my childhood, and I really had an interest in mercury as a kid. I I came down with strep throat something like a dozen times in third grade, and each time I would stay home, and my mom would put one of those old-fashioned mercury thermometers beneath my tongue. Uh, And I was a little clumsy as a kid, uh, prone to dropping things, and not infrequently I would end up dropping the thermometer on our floor, our hardwood floor, and it would break. But I was always kind of secretly excited when that happened because I loved watching the liquid ball bearings of mercury go scattering across our floor. I thought it was the most fascinating substance I'd ever seen, this gorgeous liquid metal. My mother was actually very cool about everything. She never panicked or evacuated the house or anything. She would actually get down on her hands and knees with a toothpick, and she would brush the little spheres together until we had a a nice little lump of mercury. And then she would get down this little pill jar on a knick-knack shelf, and we would get to keep the mercury, actually, in our kitchen. So that's really how I got started on the table, was uh, this love of mercury. And then especially realizing that mercury intersected with so many different areas of life. The Greeks and Romans knew about mercury and associated it with gods and planets. Uh, Alchemists knew about mercury. It was involved in the gold trade and the plunder in the New World, and it was involved in so much early science. And I really came to see how the periodic table uh, touches on so many different areas of life, and that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to touch on all those areas and really even get past uh, the idea that the periodic table is just about chemistry. There's really so much more buried on it, if you know what you're looking for. Indeed, each of the elements focus on really has a history in terms of its uh, role in human society. Besides mercury, were there any other elements that really captured your imagination? I loved the 
story of aluminum. I thought that was a very fun one. Uh, another one that I enjoyed a lot was molybdenum. It's an element that I really didn't know anything about. I definitely didn't know how to pronounce it before I started working on the book. But it had such a really great backstory to it. It was very heavily involved in steel production during World War One, and the Germans actually were trying to get their hands on loads of molybdenum for their big Bertha guns, but they didn't have a good supply of molybdenum anywhere. So they actually sent agents in to a mountain in Colorado, Bartlett Mountain in Colorado, and they started harassing the mine owners at this poor mine to get their hands on some molybdenum. So it was really the most remote battle of World War One, and it took place, you know, not on anywhere on any other continent, but in the United States. And it was just such a fun story that I never would have thought about before, and it was just sort of hidden there on the periodic table in this obscure element. Most of us really don't get much beyond, you know, the sort of typical ones of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, etc. Yeah, the, in, in school, you, you talk about the periodic table a lot, but you really focus on a few in the upper right-hand quadrant and maybe a few others scattered around the place. But there are so many great stories about out there about elements that you never get to talk about. So it was really fun to get a story about every single element on the table together and to really look into those obscure elements take a little step back and actually talk about, get back to the basics. Uh, first of all, what is an element? Well, an element is something that just can't be broken down anymore by normal means. So if you have H2O, that can be broken down. Water can be broken down into the H and the O. Same with carbon dioxide, CO2, can be broken down into the C and the O. But once you get to the C or the O, you can't break that down under normal circumstances. And when you get to that point, you have an element. And what the periodic table does is just organizes those elements in a clever way. You could think about arranging them by color or by other properties, but what the periodic table does is it takes elements and it puts them in the same column as elements with very similar properties. And for this reason, when scientists look at the periodic table, they can tell at a glance what kind of properties each element will have, how it will react with other elements, and things like that. So again, it's just a clever way to put these elements in one place, a nice compact form uh, that gives a lot of information if you know how to decipher it. And how was the uh, periodic table developed over time, its history? How did people begin to realize that there was this periodicity of, of elements in nature? There were actually six different scientists in the mid-1800s who came up with the idea of something like the periodic table, that it must exist. Some went a little further than others. Some just had sort of a rudimentary idea. The one we associate the periodic table with mostly, of course, is Dmitry Mendeleev, the Russian scientist. But he was actually the last of those six to come up with the idea of the periodic table. And the reason he's so associated with the table today is that he did more work on the table than the other scientists did. And he also did something uh, that was kind of gutsy, that was a little courageous, in that when he saw that there were holes on the periodic table where there was no known element at the time, he made predictions about uh, the fact that elements would be found, and he also made predictions about the proper 
properties of those elements. So when scientists did discover the elements and they realized that they had the exact properties that Mendeleev had predicted, they were kind of astounded uh, that this Russian, hundreds of miles away, had been able to see these properties of elements that people didn't even know existed yet. So that was really why he's associated with the table. But he doesn't deserve credit for uh, coming up with the idea by itself in the first place. He was just really able to use it to predict properties for things that had not yet been observed. Yeah, you can sort of compare him to uh, Darwin in evolution. People had come up with the rudimentary idea that maybe things evolved. There were some hints out there, but Darwin just did a lot more with it than anyone else did. He just had a very powerful vision for what evolution by natural selection was. And Mendeleev sort of did the same thing with the periodic table. He saw how fundamental and important it was, and that's why he dedicated basically the rest of his life to it after he discovered it. You mentioned that there was really a period in which a lot of elements were not known. People then looked actively for these elements? Did they just find them serendipitously? They did start looking actively for them, especially when they had the periodic table. That helped a lot because you could look at the elements above it and you could figure out that if there was a hole there was probably an element very similar to it. That happens out in nature a lot. An element will be blended in the Earth's crust with elements that are like it on the periodic table. So it was a guide for people to go out to find these elements in nature. And there was a lot of competition for discovering these elements. And I think the reason for that is that it's very prestigious to find an element because you get the right to name the element then. And that's what's really important for a lot of scientists is the right to name the element because it's going to be hanging basically in every science classroom in the world from now until the end of our civilization. So it, it, it's a big honor to be able to have have that privilege. And I think that's why it was kind of a big deal, uh, actually, that scientists announced they discovered two new elements, 114 and 116, and now they will get the right to name them. And I guess chemistry geeks around the world are already sort of whispering about what they think or hope the names of those two new elements might be. These are elements which are created in a lab and not really naturally found in nature. Yes, that, that, that's actually a really good point. Scientists aren't uh, going out and, you know, getting their fingernails dirty, finding these elements in nature anymore. Nowadays, as you said, they're creating them in labs. The basic idea is that you take a uh, beam of one element, shoot it at a stationary target, and hope that they stick together. And it doesn't happen very often. You might spend, you know, a decade designing and carrying out this experiment, and at the end of it, you might end up with five or six atoms of this element. That's it. So it can take a very long time to confirm that these elements even exist. I think the two latest ones were discovered in 1999 and 2000. And since then, they've just been going over things, redoing experiments and trying to make it official. So it's quite a laborious process nowadays. And how are the new elements named? Well, there's sort of a trend nowadays that you name them after a great scientist, sort of a celebrity scientist. That happened with the last few that were added to the periodic table, Copernicium, named after Nicholas Copernicus. And there have been whispers, rumors, that one of the new elements will be named Florovium, after a Russian scientist, actually the father of the Soviet nuclear weapon program. The other trend nowadays is to 
name them after places. And the name for the other new element might be Moscovium after Moscow. And as you can probably tell, there was a Russian team primarily that discovered these two new elements. So they're being a little patriotic in naming them after things that the Russians hold dear. A fun story out, uh, Glenn Seaborg in his time was able to write his uh, name and address completely with elements from the periodic table. Yes, he was one of the uh, big, big scientists when the Americans were kind of on top of the world in terms of discovering elements. And he's actually the only person who uh, has ever been able to see his name on the periodic table. There was uh, Seaborgium, the element named after him, but he also lived in Berkeley, California, and there were elements named Berkelium and Californium. So, as you said, that was the joke that he could just address something to himself with elements, and it would probably arrive at his house. And and I believe he also worked at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, so there's a Laurentium as well, right? There is Laurentium as well, yes. Yeah. Actually, I want to, before I forget, get to the uh, titular element of the book, the disappearing spoon. What is the disappearing spoon? The, the disappearing spoon has to do with the story of one element called gallium. It sits right below aluminum on the periodic table, and so it has very similar properties to aluminum. They look almost identical. If you had a hunk of one sitting in front of you and a hunk of the other one sitting in front of you, you probably wouldn't be able to tell them apart, except that gallium has one unusual property. It melts at about 84 degrees Fahrenheit or so. So even if you put a little bit in the palm of your hand or probably put it outside today, uh, it would start to soften up. It would start to melt. And the disappearing spoon, the title comes in because it's um, it's sort of a classic nerdy science prank to make a spoon out of gallium metal and then to serve it to somebody with hot coffee or tea or something. And, of course, the person just thinks they're getting an aluminum spoon, but they uh, figure out something unusual is going on when they put it in their tea and the head of it disappears on them. So the disappearing spoon. I, I, I did not have the chance to try it, unfortunately, and I think my cover is blown now. So <laughs> some of your listeners out there will have to try it. <laughs> So there are a number of uh, female scientists that you also talk about in the book. Uh, how important were they in, in sort of the construction of the periodic table? Uh, there, there were some that did some really fundamental work. Uh, Marie Curie comes up. She was the one, uh, along with her husband, but he died uh, sort of prematurely. So she and him were the ones who really figured out the way that radioactivity works. And radioactivity really dominates the bottom of the periodic table and how those elements, the important properties of those elements. Another one was Lisa she was an Austrian scientist, and she was actually the first one to puzzle out fission and how elements can split apart. And she discovered this right before World War II happened. So she deserves a lot of the credit for what happened later and with uh, you know nuclear power and uh, nuclear applications today. Um, another one that comes to mind is Maria Gopert Meyer. She was a European scientist but ended up living in the United States, and she was the one who came up with the theory that governs the nucleus in atoms and how atoms add protons and neutrons to the nucleus and why some nucleus, nuclei are stable and some aren't. So there were a number of women scientists who really made uh, fundamental contributions, and it was really fun to sort of highlight some of the work that they've done in the book. There is sort of a subject of your book in which you talk about the elements of madness and how chemicals may be important or essential or part of the development of this view of the mad scientist. 
Uh, there were a couple. Uh, one that comes to mind is selenium, which is an element that can sort of induce psychosis. The story, the discoverer of, of the element uh, was a man named William Crookes. He was a very, very good, very prominent scientist. He discovered selenium, actually. But later in his life, he sort of uh, got involved in spiritualism and seances and, you know, summoning people from other realms and things. And there was a lot of speculation that perhaps he'd lost his wits uh, somewhere along the way. And perhaps it had to do with all the element work he was doing uh, in his younger days. Um, and there were some other stories in there just about uh, the ways that different elements have intersected with madness over time. So it was just kind of a fun theme uh, to explore in the book. You also talk about elements as being used for standardizing our weights and measures. Yeah, one of the only artifacts left that we use to define one of the international units is it's this small cylinder that sits in a, a under a bunch of bell jars in Paris. It's made of platinum and iridium, two very dense metals, and that's the international kilogram, is this little tiny cylinder. And scientists have been trying for years and years to sort of def uh, define the kilogram in terms of something that isn't an artifact, that isn't an object. They did this with some of the other standards out there. For instance, the meter has to do, nowadays the definition has to do with the light rays emitted by certain atoms. And other ones, the second has to do with the number of vibrations of electrons in certain atoms. So they've used atoms of different elements to try to define these standards, but they just haven't had any luck yet with the kilogram. I think they're getting close, but for right now, uh, this very swaddled and uh, sort of pampered cylinder is still what we have internationally for a kilogram. In your book, you also talk about elements as money. Elements have, of course, been important throughout history for money. Gold and silver especially were uh, have been wealth for people for centuries. Uh, there was actually a funny story in there about Glenn Seaborg, who we talked about a little bit earlier. He proposed in the 1950s, I believe it was, that plutonium should become the new international standard for currency because he thought he was convinced it was going to be the most precious substance on Earth because we'd all want it for nuclear power. And some other people thought it might be a good idea because a plutonium would definitely circulate quickly because no one would want to uh, keep it around too long. So it would be good for the economy that way. But yeah, elements that really have intersected with finances and economics, too. A lot of people, even today, think that wealth should be based solely on uh, whether we have certain elements involved somewhere. So what's the current state of research on the elements? The current state, there's some different things going on. Uh, again, there are still scientists trying to make new elements, kind of try to expand the periodic table as far as it will go. There's also been some fun work recently looking at clusters of atoms. For instance, for some reason, if you get clusters of aluminum atoms together, they have a, the ability to mimic other atoms on the periodic table. I think one of them they mimic is chlorine. And it's just very strange that if you get these aluminum atoms together in a certain way, then you have a chlorine atom, what basically acts as a chlorine atom. And so scientists are kind of piecing together these alternative periodic tables based on other elements. Another fun one is scientists, this one might take a while, but scientists are looking at antimatter, too, and coming up with sort of a bizarro inverse periodic table antimatter. And actually, they just found 
the other day the first antimatter nucleus of helium-4. So that was kind of a big breakthrough, a big step, that they'd seen the second uh, nucleus of an anti-element. So there is some work still going on with the uh, periodic table today. It seems like it's been fixed in the same form forever, but it does evolve. Mm, fascinating. So are these anti-elements, do they have complete opposite properties as well? Uh, they should. They they have a negatively charged center, uh, and they have positive things circling around them. Circling around them, scientists have never really had enough of it in one place to be able to do experiments on them. So they assume that it acts a lot like matter does, uh, but they don't really know. And it's something that they want to keep going with and keep testing. So it's kind of an open question. Uh, we are running slightly out of time, though. I'm curious if you just have some final words regarding your book here, The Disappearing Spoon. It was just really a lot of fun to write it and to just sit down and to dig into every single element on the periodic table. You know, I thought there would be some of them that would be a little struggle to find a story for, but uh, it really wasn't the case. There were just so many wonderful tales out there, both about the elements themselves and then about the scientists who got involved with them and all their passion. So uh, it was really a lot of fun to write the book. Well, it really is a great book. I hope people will go out and take a look at it. It's called The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. Mr. Keene, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. All right. Well, thank you for having me. And you're just listening to Professor Sam Keene. This is the Grok Science Show. All right, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the following topic. Which element would they be? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were an element, which element would they be and why? Mr. Keene, ready to play the game? All right, yes. Okay, here we go. Person number one, which element would he be and why? Charlie Sheen. 
Charlie Sheen, uh, you would need something reactive. Um, I would say probably sodium. It, it's very reactive. You put some in water, it's going to start to spark and burn. Um, it's going to go off pretty quick. Yeah, pretty volatile, huh? <laughs> yeah, volatile. Yes, good, good word. All right. Uh, number two, uh, which element would he be? Uh, the basketball player, LeBron James. Oh, LeBron James. Um... I am going to go with gold, I think. It sort of stands out on its own, uh, sort of the standard of wealth around the world, and he's sort of the standard of basketball excellence. So even though he's uh, not always the most popular nowadays, I'm going to go with gold. All right. <laughs> Good news for all the Miami fans out there. Number three, which element would he be? Scientist Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. Hmm. I would say you would want something that's normally quiet but can be quite reactive under the right circumstances. I am going to go then with chlorine because very common. We see it in table salt, things like that. Uh, but if you get chlorine in the wrong form, uh, it, can, it can hurt you. It can bite back. Okay, number four, which element would he be? Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Um... Let me think. I would say I would want maybe chromium. It's a very, again, a very attractive metal. It can be polished to a nice high sheen, and I think that's what Steve Jobs uh, is very good at, making things that look really, really gorgeous. So design elements, things like that. I would go with chromium. All right, number five, finally, uh, which element would he be? It's the uh, President of the United States, Barack Obama. Barack Obama. I am going to, I would go with neon. That is what I see him as because he's sort of, a, the noble gases, uh, which neon is one of them, they sort of afloat uh, among us and above everything, but they don't really interact or react with other elements on the table. And uh, Barack is very cool, sort of a little distant sometimes, and not really interacting with the rest of us. He's kind of out there in his own thing. So I would go with Neon. Well, uh, Mr. Keene, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game and again talking about your book, which is called The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. And you're just listening to Mr. Sam Keene talking about his book, The Disappearing Spoon. Well, this has been the Grok Science Show you're listening to. We'll be back in with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to see us, you can do so on the web, www www.rocks.net or email science at rocks.net we are on facebook and twitter